and welcome to She's the Boss Chats. I'm your host, Jules Brooke, and in the show, I interview amazing women and female founders about what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it. It's all about us lifting up the women around us. Jodie Harrison, I can't wait to do this interview with you. I'm dying to hear your story. Thanks for having me. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Great to so, see you, Jules. And you too, Jodie. So let's start off with uh, what you're doing now. Do you want to? And I know that it's going to be great because I know what you're doing now. But tell people what you do in general, and then what you're doing now. Certainly. Um, well, my background is a journalist, but I also moved into PR. Yeah. And uh, also I've worked in advertising. Oh, yeah, we're going to go right into that. I'm going to get you to take oh, me back yes. to when you were a little girl. So currently I am the PR partner for the Shannon Company. Yeah. And we specialise in behaviour change. We specialise in inspiring change to make the world a better place. Oh, my God, right up my alley. <laughs> and and it's very it's all about purpose-driven businesses, isn't it, within it's all Shannon, and it's an agency, an ad, a marketing agency, or yes, it's, it's a, a communications agency. So right. we do advertising. Um, I look after the PR side of things with clients. We have a lot of very big clients. Um, we have government. We have corporate. We have not for profits. Right. But um, on top of that, I am also uh, the PR for Julian Assange, the Assange campaign. Amazing. That is really amazing and, and fabulous. Very busy. I can only imagine. And let's just go straight into what were you doing when I first met you about 18 months ago was the COVID campaign. You were doing PR for that as well, weren't you? That's right. So... Um, All the little topics, you know, the ones that nobody ever really talks about. <laughs> That's right. The, uh, the, the Victorian government is a client. Of, yeah. Uh, or the Shannon Company is a client of the Victorian government, one mm. of their preferred suppliers for communications, advertising, marketing. And when COVID started, uh, I at first I was um, – in shock, as we all I think were. we all were, yeah. And we all yeah, thought it would be like were. three weeks and we'll be out. Well, within the first week, I'd had about six months' worth of my PR campaigns cancelled. Oh, my goodness, hold. yeah. And um, like everyone, I think, out there, I was thinking, ooh, how am I going to be paying the bills now? <laughs> uh, ooh, yeah, it was, it was a terrible time for everyone, had. wasn't it? Yeah. But... Um, one of our clients, the Australian Red Cross, asked me to come in and to write and produce a podcast series called The COVID Collective. Okay. And it was all about putting together a podcast series about inspiring stories to help people get through the pandemic and to help them with their mental health. And uh, I did that with uh, Francis Leach. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. And, um, we had a lot of fun doing that. And uh, straight after that, um, I received a call from the Victorian government asking if I was interested in giving them a hand to uh, run COVID communications. That pesky little campaign, that pesky little thing that was just bothering us for a little while. That's right. I mean, my initial contract was three months. <laughs> And, I shouldn't uh, laugh. It wasn't funny at the time, but no. <laughs> two, two years, years later. later. Two years later, I uh, finished my three-month contract <laughs> on the 1st of July this year. Wow. And I said, oh, no, thanks. I don't want an extension. We're, we're done. 
Yes, I bet it sounds, I bet it feels like a dirty word to you now. You must have had to deal with so much to do with that. Well, there was so much um, going on Mm. and we were all learning on the fly. Yeah. So I was working a lot with um, some of the most brilliant people around, uh, researchers, health professionals, um, epidemiologists and uh, dealing with... (laughs) really tragic circumstances. Mm. So with the frontline workers working uh, on exposure sites, at outbreaks, remarkably I was one of the only people in my team that did not catch COVID. That is remarkable, my goodness. But um, Did it catch up with you at some stage? Have you not had it at all? I've never had it. I've never had it. Gosh, you must be one of a handful of... I'm about to have my fourth. But... um, a lot of amazing things happened during that. We were the first in Victoria to create infection prevention and control guidelines for COVID. Gosh. We were the first to create. Did it feel a bit surreal, like you were doing it in a science fiction movie or something? Because it was just such an unreal it was, time, wasn't it? It was. And we were putting together policies for um, to prevent COVID transmission through ventilation and we were putting together communication strategies for COVID. And because we were really on the front foot in doing that, we ended up sharing them in, in the in the spirit of we're all in this together. Yeah. We ended up sharing it with all the other states and the Australian government and then to other countries around the world. Wow, I didn't realise that was being led by Victoria. Amazing. Yeah. So I was um, spending a lot of time also talking with other countries, with America, with Europe, um, Asia-Pacific nations, <coughs> and, uh, you know, we were working. It, it was nothing to do 70, 80 hours a week, mm. every week. I do remember when I was being interviewed for the position by... Um, an inspiring, amazing woman who's become a great friend and inspiration to me. Yeah. Her name is Claire Boardman mm-hmm. and she's the deputy, she was the deputy public health commander of Victoria and she interviewed me <laughs> for the job. I got the phone call. The next day I had the interview. The day after that I you had got the, the job, job and you had to start. <laughs> And um, what a wild ride it was, but it was truly remarkable and it was it was amazing being able to feel like you're making a difference. Yeah, 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 huge difference. And, I mean, when, when there was just so much unknown that, you know, we didn't know what we were facing. All right, now a little that we've done a little bit about that and we'll come back, I'm sure, to Julian. But first I wanted to hear about your life because you are an incredible woman who has worked in so many interesting areas. But we're going to start with when you were a little girl. <laughs> I love doing this to people. And they go, oh, my God. Okay, so the first thing I want to know is where did you grow up? What did your parents do? Did you have brothers and sisters and what kind of a family was it? We um, we have a large, very close family. I was born in Sydney. Right. I was actually born in Parramatta District Hospital and at the time my father was playing rugby league for the Parramatta Eels. Oh, wow. Who just lost the... What was his name there? Just because the there National might be... Rugby League... 
grand final last weekend. So right. A, a few sad people in my family at the moment. I bet. So what was your dad's name? So my dad's name is Keith Harrison. Keith Harrison. Okay. And, um, my grandfather uh, was Alfred Edward Leach, also known as Peter Leach. He was a former Olympic swimmer. My mother's father wow. is, and he was managing director of the club, and he had five daughters. Five at uh, the Parramatta Eels Club. Oh, five Eels daughters, <laughs> and the five daughters were absolutely off limits to the players. Yeah, I bet. I bet <laughs> he knew what went on behind behind closed doors. As my mother tells me, my mother was an amazing woman in her own right. She was a poet and a netball administrator, and. Um, just an all-around wonderful woman. So she, as she told me that she had to secretly seduce my father and have this <laughs> secret affair until Dad got the tap on the shoulder at training one night to say the boss wants to see you. <laughs> and what was it? Uh, he walked in and the first thing my grandfather said to him was, so when's the wedding? Oh, oh so how old were they roughly when they got together, do you know? Oh, early 20s. I mean 20s, yeah. I, I think early 20s. So my dad became quite a legend at the Parramatta Eels Rugby League Club. Right. Less for his football playing and more for the fact that he snared one of the daughters. <laughs> and then went on to have five of his own. So no brothers at all? Um I know. Um, my mum and dad had three children. Oh, I'm getting their generations yeah. mixed up. That was your dad's generation. So when my father retired from rugby league, uh, I was only five, six years of age, we moved up to where we used to holiday, a beautiful place called Terrigal on the Central uh, Coast. Ah, yes. And um, I have an older sister who's a nurse. Yeah. She's two years older than me. I have a younger brother who's a chef and used to be a pro surfer. He okay. became a chef. Gosh, look at you all so sporty. Uh, very sporty. And you. <laughs> and um, my parents also uh, fostered children, uh, as did my maternal grandparents. Oh, how fantastic. Um, Big Poppers, who was known, Peter Leach and um, Nellie Leach, they fostered around 50 children as well as raising their own five daughters. Wow. And so, so got pa- Yeah. And us. so did your parents do like, did you kind of grow up with lots of other kids around the house all the time? Oh, how great. So I have. I love um, that as an idea. My beautiful foster sister, Joyce. Yeah. Uh, she's Aboriginal and she works for New South Wales Health. So did she stay with you for a long time? She, she did. She came when she was 11 mm-hmm. and um, I'm now very close. As far as my father was concerned, we were all the same. Yeah, so I love no that. No fosters, no stepchildren, nothing. Everyone is a sibling. So, and my, um, I'm very proud of, of my my sister Joyce. She has had a remarkable life. And, yeah. Uh, remarkable challenges. And she has always been a beautiful and very talented woman. And she has raised three children of her own. And um, many of them went on to represent Australia in sport. And my niece. There is just a theme coming through here all the time. You bucked the trend by getting into business in some ways. 
But you did, but I'm I'm jumping ahead. So, so did you like school? So remembering this is a sort of about career as well. I just like to know what kind of a family you grew up in, because for some people watching their parents, obviously as role models is what kickstarts it in my family. We all don't think we're entrepreneurs, but I remember clearly my dad going out on his own when he was about 30. So, um, yeah. So father. When he retired from football, he did buy a taxi company. Okay. He ran up there and that was very successful. My mother uh, worked doing all the books. Yep. And Keep going. I can feel there's a buzzing going, but we're going to ignore it. It's my phone ringing. (laughs) That's all right. And um, so we understood about small business from that. I was very diligent at school. I was a little smarty pants, so to speak. Okay, goody two shoes. I mean, what did you get into? Were you a bit of a mischief maker as well? I was a little bit of a mischief maker, but I loved school. I loved the whole learning. I was just like soaking it up. I was fortunate to have some fantastic, inspiring teachers. Makes such um, a difference, doesn't it, if you've got the two. Even now, all these years later, you can still remember them. (laughs) And there's there's a whole lot of world-class surfers that came from my high school. So whenever the surf was running, half the school would Would disappear. be disappearing, but I'd still be there working. (laughs) The redhead. (laughs) Redhead with freckles, you know. Um, But I love school. And then when I was 17, I went on an exchange with Rotary to um, the United States. Ah, did you? In in Bay City, Michigan. And what do you what do you think of that? Was that really good for you? Do you think that's a terrific thing for kids to do? Yeah, Yeah. it was fabulous. I remember leaving Terrigal in the middle of summer in January, so it was like forty degree day, and then (laughs) I landed in Detroit Airport, and it was minus forty. Oh, minus forty! Does it get that cold? I had no idea. It's on the Great Lakes. I I can't even imagine how you deal with minus forty. I mean, is that sort of like your eyelashes starting to freeze? It's um, I remember the first time I washed my hair and I was going to walk to school, and they said you can't do that. Your hair will break off with ice. <laughs> Isn't that just bizarre that we never have to think about, you know, the depths of cold? But then they probably couldn't imagine 40 degrees Celsius either. But I met a lot of amazing people and did a lot of um, public speaking. I started doing a lot of public speaking. At school? When I was 17, no, to Rotary Club. Okay. To other about what? groups and professional groups. About Australia. About okay. My life in Australia, my family. My yeah, that makes sense. And dreams for the future. I mean, that's way before it was a global village. So it would have, there would have been so much curiosity curiosity about Australia because, I mean, everyone would remember when Hoag's came out with that campaign. Americans, I think, just thought kangaroos, you know, hopped down the street at that stage. So yeah. it would have been an eye-opener for them. That campaign hadn't come out yet. No. What did happen while I was oh, yeah. there and I was very lucky to attend it is Australia won the America's Cup. Oh, my goodness. Was that when you were over there? That's right. Wow, I remember that. <laughs> I did a lot of travelling. I travelled virtually all over the United States. So did you? So did you go over with school, or were you over just as a sort of gap yearish kind of thing? No, no, I was on a Rotary Exchange scholarship. Right. So how do you get to travel for a year? Oh, because I asked nicely. <laughs> I had people who wanted to come with me, and of course, when Australia looked like it may win the America's Cup for the first time. Ever, uh, I headed over to Newport, Rhode Island. Right. 
And there's a remarkable photo of me standing on the dock with a huge crowd of people on the dock welcoming in the um, the Australian boat after it. Which was, that was the one when it had the keel, the keel that was. Keel. That's right. I can't that's remember right. the guy who designed it, but we all knew his name at the ben, time. Ben, 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 Someone, ben. a lovely guy, anyway. I just very right. quiet guy had done it in his garage, and nobody knew. <laughs> and ironically, there's a photograph of me on that dock. And I've got pretty wild hair, so I can stand out. But five people away from me is a photographer shooting. And remarkably, he was going to become my husband. Stop it. Oh, I got goosebumps when you said that. Are you serious? And you didn't meet each other that day. And so how did you, you just stumbled across the photo at some stage and went, oh, my God, you're the in it. Yeah, it was, he said, were you on the dock? And then he bought out this big Stop. photograph and that was There me. you were. And five people away, that was me. And so that was another, um, gosh, it was another like seven years later when we wow. were isn't that weird? That's fantastic. Oh, my goodness, that's brilliant. Okay, so you travelled around America uh, for a year or so after school. What did you think you wanted to do when you came back? Well, when I came back, I um, did a Bachelor. I started a Bachelor of Arts right. at Macquarie University. At first I did a, I was doing a double degree of law and arts right. and arts specialising in politics and journalism. Ooh. But it all got a bit much. So <laughs> I can I imagine. Law bit, and um, I I was always quite politically connected. Our families were quite politically mm. connected. My grandfather on my father's side, he was a trade union leader and leader in the Australian Communist Party. Right, great. And my <laughs> father, who's now 85, has been a member of the Australian Labor Party for over 60 years. Okay, so it's still all quite left in the family, though. The, the, you left. didn't end up having somebody who became a liberal something or other. No, I think um, there is a photograph of me at my first election where I was working at the age of six handing out how to vote cards. (laughs) Okay, so it was pretty much ingrained from birth. It was pretty much ingrained from birth and um, I became very good friends. One of my best friends at school, his name was Adam. His father was Barry Cohen, the former Arts, Heritage and Environment Minister in the Hawke government. So when I came out of uni... I did work with um, Barry, he was my, you know, sort of, he was one of my mentors and his beautiful wife who was truly one of the most inspiring women and my mother sadly died when I was 21. Right. So um, she never saw me graduate or, or, or start my working career. But um, Ray Cohen really stepped in and became another mother. She had um, lived this amazing life. She was an Olympic fencer. She was tall, glamorous. Um, They ran a business, a um, clothing retail business. 
and she was a sports person, but she was just uh, a person that said you can do anything. Oh, my goodness. I mean, having that at such a young age makes such a huge difference, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So, but I'm interested to know, did you ever at any stage think about going into politics yourself? Well, because it seems like an obvious <laughs> path for you. There has been a lot of effort put into trying to get me to, to do that. enter politics. But when Barry retired, I um, had become a journalist just on the local paper. And I always felt as a journalist I had to remain bipartisan, mm-hmm. um, that I shouldn't join any party if I'm going to be reporting then that I makes need sense. to be reporting the truth. Yeah. Not the truth as I see it, but the real truth. The real truth. <laughs> I'm glad you identified the difference between That's that. Right. Yes. So uh, I ended up um, in Terrigal, I ended up very quickly editing the local little paper, the Terrigal Times. And okay. uh, this bloke used to call me every Friday to give me his take on the weekly paper. <laughs> and we became great mates. And So I it was liked, constructive criticism it then. It was very <laughs> constructive. So his name is Frank was Frank Hardy. Ah. He had written a book called Power Without Glory. Which is incredibly famous, isn't it? He's a very big incredibly name. Incredibly famous. And ironically, when I was a little girl, one of my earliest memories and this is still back down in Parramatta, was being dressed up in my Sunday best and to go into Parramatta prison to visit my grandpa who had been jailed for having a copy of the band book Power Without Glory. Oh, my goodness. My grandfather, the communist. The circles and the everything keeps on coming around full circle in these stories. It's amazing. And um, so he was... You know, he ended up becoming my mentor. Every Friday I'd go over there and, you know, he'd get whiskey out and as much as I would refuse, he would force it <laughs> And um You'd discuss the weeks. after that I got offered a role uh, with News Corp in Sydney okay. and then became a foreign correspondent. So. Oh, okay. So how old were you when you became a foreign cor- correspondent? Well, I mean, that is... Such a great job. I mean, it's one of those things that you watch other women do and think, God, that would be fabulous, or I do anyway. I think I was in my mid-20s when I started working for News Corp and then by, oh, no, it would have been earlier than that. So I met Peter Corrette, the photographer. Husband-to-be. And we decided to set up a business together called Icon Images. Oh, no, that's quite a successful brand as well. I have heard of that, but I'm interested to know first, because this is all about entrepreneurial women, what made you think about going out on your own or you and Peter doing something together rather than getting a job with someone else? We did decide to do something together because he was a very well-connected um, quite a famous photographer. Yeah. He was like the per- preferred personal photographer for not only the Packers but the Murdoch family. Oh, wow. A lot of famous people. He was originally, he started his career in London with Sir Frank Packer as his copy boy when he was 17. Right. He travelled and worked in Europe and America and... So we what an extraordinary guy. We spent a lot of time here as the photographer, me as the journalist, and we built up our own media agency. 
agency, right. which we ended up representing 27 photographers and journalists. Wow. But we also had nine sub-agencies around the world to syndicate all of our media. So London, New York, Rome, Paris. Paris. Oh, my God, did you, get to, did you have to go and check up on all those offices each year? <laughs> Several times a year. Oh, what a great job. Wow, what a fantastic early career you had, jumping in with both feet, you and Peter, by the sounds of it. One of the reasons that it became so successful so quickly too, the internet was just starting. Right. And we were one of the first people. Holger Brockman, our radio DJ who's on ABC News Radio. Yeah. And people might remember Holger as being that um, gorgeous-looking hippie who was the first DJ when Double J started. Oh, wow. Who played You Just Like Me Because I'm Good in Bed. <laughs> and everyone went, oh, my God, that song. Yes, it was banned at the time. Um, he said, there's this thing called the internet. I'm going to show you. And we were one of the first people to get it. And I remember going in to News Corp's office and talking to John Hardigan, mm-hmm. who was the um, editor-in-chief of all of News Corp for Murdoch in Australia, and telling him about it. And he didn't quite believe us. And I said, well, how about we send and receive all your photos and we can do it instantly. You don't have to do it across the wires. And we start by doing that. And so we had the News Limited's international syndication rights <laughs> to wow. the world through our agencies. Yeah, amazing. And then, of course, everyone jumped on the web and... It, it all took Well, whoever knew in those days that you wouldn't even, that newspapers would be dying and that you'd end up reading them on the internet as well. Well, it made me really interested in, in the way that the media and the communications and PR world was about to undergo a massive, a massive change. Brave new world, a massive change with the new technology. And you could either be open to it and, you know, open your world to a whole lot of new possibilities. Or stick with it because newspapers are not really known, particularly those guys that used to run newspapers were not known to be embracing change back in those days. I mean, I worked in local papers in those days too. That's right. And so I was um, I was quite into embracing change. I was also, uh, I'd also worked a lot in not-for-profits. Um, I... It was something that was ingrained from a young age that, you know. Support those who, yeah. We're lucky. We are the lucky country. And I was very lucky to have an upbringing and an education that I did. And there's a lot of the world that aren't that lucky. No. So I've always been a bit of a fighter for the underdog. That could be the lucky That's beautiful. I don't know why that has to be seen as a lefty thing, actually. It's really funny, but it is. I mean, it, I have to say I've been pretty not interested in politics all my life, but I but I have realised over time that if you, if you believe in supporting other people and that we should all look after each other, suddenly you become a lefty. It's kind of interesting. I guess we don't want to get into too much politics, but... Interesting, and I love it that that was ingrained in you from an early age. And, and I looked at business and the business, the businesses that I was building and we were building as a means to, okay, how 
can we use that to also help other people? Mm. So, for example, Fantastic. we used to take celebrities to other countries and like World Vision does now very publicly. You right. used to do that in the early well, days. We took Angelina Jolie the first time to Cambodia. You did? Yeah. <gasps> That's so I, famous that, that it changed, changed her whole life, didn't it? And she ended up meeting Maddox. That's right. And in and um adopting him. Yeah. So we had been supporting uh, an organization called Crusade May, which means new family in Cambodia during the Pol Pot rain. Uh it was it was terrible. Oh. There was uh, I, I'd been working. Well, she actually there. Angelina's done a fantastic movie. The movie that she did about that was really good. That's right. That that's a good one. So we made a UN um, HDR documentary film with Jack Thompson, taking a group of refugee orphans from site to refugee camp in Thailand. It was the biggest Khmer settlement outside of Cambodia. Yeah. Back to a country that they'd never seen. A lot of these kids had never been outside the refugee yeah. camp. Yeah. They thought water, a world without walls. They thought water came from a big blue truck with UN written on the side. Oh my goodness. They'd never seen rice paddy fields. And so we donated um that that was called the children of the killing fields. And um, we donated our fee that built the very first orphanage there, which is named after my late former husband, Peter Carrett. And we just stayed in touch and became patrons and ended up raising a lot of money by taking people like Angelina Jolie to Cambodia to show them what was going on. And I would write the story. My husband would do the photographs. We'd syndicate them around the world and we'd donate all the money to the orphanage. How beautiful. What a great model. And then and then it's just finding the celebs that are happy to waive a fee, I guess, to say, and, and, and are curious. And it's amazing. <coughs> there are a lot of them, you know, that are really willing to use their star power for good. Well, so they bloody and well they should. they genuinely <laughs> believe. They genuinely be- yeah. believe in it because they realise particularly how fortunate they are when they go to a country like Cambodia or Laos or Vietnam. Or Ethiopia or, or, Ethiopia or almost anywhere or now. Africa. Yeah. We went to Kenya, to Mali, to all kinds of Rwanda um, places. Did you find that very confronting, the whole... I mean, really going from killing fields to war zones to refugee camps. How how many years were you doing that? I mean, that would... I've pretty much done it since my 20s, my early 20s, and I'm now 57. And you're still doing it? Yeah, and I'm still doing it. That's amazing. What a um, legacy. That is incredible, Jodie. To fund that, um, I believe in business. Yeah. Yes. um, And so working in the industry that I work in has been able to help a lot of people and hopefully a lot more to come. Yes. Well, I, I, I would like to think one thing that's come out of the pandemic is that people have started to realise that we, we are all on this planet together. We all need to help each other. I've definitely myself anecdotally noticed change with people who I think probably three years ago wouldn't necessarily have thought of others in the same way that they are now. And that, um, and I mean, I think Julian Assange is, is a really good example of what happened pre-pandemic and that now we look at it maybe with different 
with a different lens and kind of go, okay, whether it was confronting, whether it was, you know, whatever it was about releasing secrets then, which is could also be seen as what journalism does anyway. But now it's just so wrong that someone has not been charged and has been kept, you know, locked down for, what is it, 10 years or something now? Oh, it's coming up. Uh, 13 years. Thir- I mean, that is that is a, a sentence that he wouldn't have got, I don't believe. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's um, Julian is a brilliant person. I mean, you have to be brilliant to think about. Yesterday I had the pleasure of making a speech at the WikiLeaks Sweet 16th birthday party. Sweet and, but bitter. <laughs> and we were talking about it and the fact that he could conceive with this new technology and the new world that we were living in, that this was an opportunity to right wrongs. Mm. This was an opportunity to expose lies, to expose war crimes, to um, expose... Yes, because Guantanamo was going on then as well, wasn't it? Illegal actions that are taking place and getting... Governments to you be just, accountable for. You just wonder if he had been, if it had been dealt with at the time and they had realised, look, okay, you know, the New York, I mean, the New York Times and The Age and everyone else was all publishing this information secondhand. His they just didn't want to be, yeah, that's right. That, um, yeah, you just wonder what he might have achieved if he'd been free for the last 13 years because that brilliance would have, and, and it was always coming from a place of goodness. Um, you know, a, a good heart um, that, you know, he, he may have done other things to solve other problems in the world that we'll never know now. Yeah, so he founded, um, he founded WikiLeaks in 2006 mm. and became its publisher and the first editor. And then in 2010, uh, a lot of the listeners might know of this, he published a classified military video shot from an Apache helicopter. Right. Looking down on the streets in Baghdad and it was the US military taking aim and... Shooting innocent civilians. Yeah, shooting innocent civilians, including children, including two Reuters journalists who were killed and then laughing about it. I mean, who wouldn't want to expose something like that? That's right. He published this. Especially as a journalist. Yeah. As a journalist, he published this because it was in the public interest. Yes. And as a journalist, and I've been a journalist essentially 35 years, that's what happens. You get a source, you validate, you authenticate that the information is correct. correct, And you publish. Mm. It is in the public interest. So he was only doing what every other journalist. I think the only did, yeah. But he embarrassed and shamed them. And for that, he is. And he didn't have enough power when he did it, as in the WikiLeaks wasn't a big enough name to stop them doing what they did. I mean, you know. WikiLeaks has published over 10 million documents specialising in. Uh, sensitive documents or restricted military and political kind of war, spying, mm. war crimes, and it's now the greatest media source in the world. Wow! 
They are the leading number one mil, uh, media source in the world. Every other major media outlet goes the to them for the original goes information to them and publishes the information. And they have a 100% authentication record. Every single thing mm. is true that they have put out. However, they have deeply shamed, uh, Julian has deeply embarrassed and shamed the US government. Yes. And they want their man. And at the moment, he, well, he's been hunted down, he's been detained, he's been persecuted, mm. and now being prosecuted for 13 years. And he's in a really bad way right now. I'm not surprised. I, mean, I can't imagine being locked down for 13 years, especially in the way that it's happened, and particularly with him being at the Paraguay, Paraguay, Paraguay it was, wasn't it? Um, the Ecuadorian the Ecuadorian embassy, embassy for what was that? Eight years or something? With no sun, years. yeah, no sunlight really, no yeah. anything. And people think anyway, the embassy must be a palace. It's not. It is a tiny no. It's a pokey little, yeah, pokey little room that the CIA had infiltrated and put cameras and listening devices even in the toilet. Yeah. So, Shocking. Um, okay. Three years ago he was dragged out of there in April 2019 and he's been in jail. His Majesty's Belmarsh Prison in which is the Supermax high security mm. prison. He's been there for three years. He was supposed to be there for 50 weeks. It's now been 182 weeks today and he hasn't been convicted of anything. No, well, with you behind him, I expect that this is going to get resolved in the next year or so. Well, optimistic. But uh, well, I am optimistic. That's let's hope anyway. It's but time for all of us to stand up. I think so. Well, I think that's what people thing. are doing. For whatever your passion is, you need mm. to stand up for it. And if you see people that are being pushed down and you don't agree with it, then you need to pull them up rather than watching it from afar, which I think mm. um, might be our knee-jerk reaction in the past anyway. So let's go back to your career. So you built up Icon with Peter. Yes. And How long did you run that for? Oh, we ran that together for about eight years and yeah. then we sold that to Getty Images. So how did that happen? I mean, I, you know, there'll be enough women listening that will go, how do you sell to sort of, to a big organisation? Did you approach them? Did they approach you? Peter died unexpectedly. Oh, um, sorry, I didn't realise that. And uh, we were contacted by all the big agencies around the all world. All the vulture, were they all hovering around? Who were interested. Right. I was not interested in uh, continuing or my daughter. And so we uh, we sold that to Getty Images. Right. And um, by then I had met, uh, I'd been working in Southeast Asia, Cambodia again, and I had come back to Sydney for the Sydney Olympics and I met my current husband at the beach volleyball finals on Vondo Beach. Oh my god, I remember that. So when I came back from London that year just for the just for the Olympics and yeah, yes, and yes. the year two thousand, because it was all conveniently all bundled up together, those those two things. Lovely. That's amazing. So when you met your new guy who presumably wasn't a husband straight away, yeah. what did you, t what were you doing? Because what do you do when you've set up a business, obviously had a terrible tragedy and a shock, 
what do you do next? I mean, did you just become a journalist or what were you thinking you were going to do next? I can always consult because I had a lot of background. I'd worked around the world. I can freelance as a journalist. I can be a PR consultant. I can be a media advisor. I can be a communication specialist. But sometimes being lots of options makes it hard to choose one. How did you? That's right. So I, at that time... Um, he said, I'll move to Sydney. This is um, my new husband. Phoenix. Where was he from? Melbourne. Oh, okay. Oh, not said, from I'll, London or something. I'll move to Melbourne. I've always loved Oh, Melbourne. lucky us. <laughs> yeah. And I came down here and I decided to work in government, work in not-for-profits. Mm-hmm. So I worked for a number of um, of. Uh, up for the Arthritis Foundation, for the National Continents Foundation. Okay. I became a board member of Motor Neuron Disease. Victoria right. Oh, lovely. I worked uh, doing a lot of, I had freelance uh, clients mm. that I worked on um, the launch of the new Australian Synchrotron back then. What is an Aust- what is the Australian Synchrotron? I've heard of it. It's next to Monash University. It is in a, Clayton. It is a super duper um, microscope that spins electrons at the speed of light. Oh, is it like that thing that it we hear like about in? The Great Hadron Collider. Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay. We've got a mini we version of that, do we? in Australia. Wow. It's in Clayton, Victoria. I never, ever would have. That is just Monash University. bizarre to hear that. So um, so you're freelancing and you're consulting. How did Shannon's or when did Shannon's come in? Well, I or was that later? building up my consulting work. I was doing work with the Burnett Institute, who a lot of people might have heard through the COVID pandemic. I was running World AIDS Day events for them. I was God, I love the projects that you work on. They're so great. We Care Australia yeah. doing the World Hunger Campaigns and uh, a number of other uh, big organisations like that, the Banksia Foundation, Environmental. Right. Uh, I'm doing the Environmental Awards and the Prime Minister's Environmentalist of the Year. And it's so inspiring, you know. I always say one of my superpowers is surrounding myself with brilliant people. You know, it is a superpower, but they always say if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. (laughs) And my thing is, um, my favourite saying is to be that person that will mention someone else's name in a room full of opportunities where you've got to find that room first. So that's amazing that you have managed to do that so successfully. And uh, so one day I was um, at a lunch with a lot of marketing people, some journalists and other people, and I was sitting next to Bill Shannon of the Shannon Company. Right. Did you know him then? Uh, No, but I knew of him. Right. And I knew that he knew my late former husband. Mm -hmm. And I said, I've got a great idea for a campaign. And I call it laugh without leaking. <laughs> I know this. Is, I love this. And he said, "You've got two minutes." And I said, "Well, incontinence affects one in four people. It costs this many billions of dollars. 
we all we all like a bit of toilet humor let's use a comedian to get a really important health message across that you should get your yeah check your 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 your, your, wee, your wees and poos in order <laughs> yes he said i love it you can stay sitting next to me all afternoon now was that really when you met him that is that, I'm, i assume you're talking about the campaign with bev killick I did. Who, who I very was very delighted to meet a couple of years before that campaign. But ah, so that's now bringing another story round full circle. Yes. I remember her um, laughing her head off on the project and being interviewed about it and going, oh, oh, oh don't make me laugh, don't make me laugh. I'm going to wee myself. She's so good. That was just such a she great match. Amazing. Yeah, she was amazing. And and that's one of the things when you've got a serious issue. Sometimes that people don't want to talk about. Sometimes you've got to think outside the box. Yeah. You think, well, how do we get people talking about this? And Bev Kelly was just the most fantastic ambassador. <laughs> well, there's nothing she won't talk and about. Oh, my goodness, we had so much fun. Oh, you must have. The campaign was so successful, it went, by the second year, it went viral around the world. Wow. I didn't realise that. We... We had almost 500 media stories just in two weeks of World Continents Week in, a, in 2017, 2018. That is amazing. And we had an audience of something like 228 million people. That's extraordinary, isn't it? But it just goes to show, and I, I agree with you, that if, if topics are serious and you can bring some kind of levity into it and people are comfortable talking about it, that it can just be magic. That's amazing. And um, we had this great creative that was done by the team at the Shannon Company who I just adored working with. And, um, and then Bill said, how about you come and work with us? And I said, why not? Why not indeed? So um, they they have a, a great reputation and a great creative team and, and accounts and they well, I think more the science behind the behavioural science I think, behind the yeah, campaigns. I think for me th there's lots of agencies out there but I have never seen them focusing on behaviour change and purpose-driven businesses mm. and I think that makes them really stand out. I'd never heard of them before you told me about them and I, mm. you know, I think that's extraordinary. And I would imagine cutting edge and probably the start of something that will start happening around the world over the next few years anyway. It is. So we've been doing some great stuff. So I think so it's three, three and a half, maybe coming up to four years. Okay. Been, Gosh, I thought it had been maybe 20 years, yeah. 30 years that you'd been working here. No. No, not at all. And um, so uh, my my business is the, the PR partner. Yeah. And... Uh, We've been doing amazing things for foster kids, like the most significant new reform for foster children in Australia that we now have seven out of eight governments that have extended government support to foster kids to the age of 21. 
Fantastic. In fact, we have a She's the Boss uh, member who has started, has foster kids and has started a platform that now has gone around the world because she realised that after they have been in up to 20 different placements during their life before they're 18, there is no place that holds their memories for them. The photos, the school reports, the... And she said what happens with a lot of kids is that because they have had trauma in their lives, a lot of them, they don't remember the good things. They only remember the bad things. So when they have their own foster kids, she said, well, where do we go and put it? And they said, I'll stick it on a USB and give it to the child. And she went, that's ridiculous. And just started what is essentially a glorified Dropbox that parents can put all those memories into for children. It's such a simple solution, but so clever. I, I just, you know, hearing about what those foster kids have to go through, it's fantastic that, you know, these simple solutions can make such a huge difference to them. Okay, we're going to have to wind this up in a second. I've got a couple of little questions for you. Okay, one is... Um, we have had, I have now interviewed about 200 women that are very successful and there is a common theme throughout, which is burnout. So one of the questions I like to ask is how are you doing that juggle to avoid burnout and keep successful? But what sort of hours do you work? What does your week look like in terms of downtime and uptime? <laughs> You're shaking your head. Are you going to say I work all the time? Well, um, you did hear me say what kind of hours I work yes. on um, COVID. That was about 70 to 80 hours a week. That's So you just keep like pushing a, through. A bit of a walk in the park. Uh, really? Taking on uh, this. Julian, yeah. So, as well as my other so how do you stop yourself getting sick? I take myself away on respite. Oh, good. So, so you might work really hard, but you will take then a week at the end of a campaign or whoops, I don't know how you might do it. That's the aim, Jules. But I, I think you really need to look up. <laughs> yeah, it's best yourself. intentions. I can, I can tell when it's all getting a bit too much. And there was a time where I was, you know, not sleeping very well. I was only sleeping three or four hours. Oh. A night, and you can only do that for so long. Well, so I would only be able to do it for like two or three nights. And oh, you could do it. I can imagine. It's amazing what you do. Yeah. When you have to. But um, I think it's really important to look after yourself. I was mm. lucky on the COVID. Um, I learned a lot of really good personal um, mental health and looking after yourself personally from all the amazing people mm. that I worked with there, the health professionals. Well, I mean, I don't even know how they have coped. It's just still going really for them, isn't it? And and checking in, making sure you're checking in with the team and making sure you're checking out, making sure you get up from your desk and you walk around, you go out to the park, you take the dog for a walk. Yeah. Um, you, you get out... I go to the hydrotherapy pool. <laughs> good. <laughs> I love it in the hydrotherapy pool. No, that sounds good. It's I mean, it does sound like there's sort of a, a sort of balance. I wouldn't say it's the ideal balance, but yeah. it's, um, yeah. you know, we do what we have to do as well because things do need to get done. And I do, I do actively plan and I have to campaign to keep the timing for my respite time because if not... Uh, yeah, yeah, it could it, easily get gobbled up. So how often do you do that? Like would you take for do you plan at the beginning of the year like four weeks you're gonna take off or no, because you just never know <coughs> what's gonna happen and particularly with the type of work that I'm doing at the moment, there's a lot of reactionary yes, work for media, um, for the situation 
um, happening with Julian, who's who's incredibly ill in solitary confinement at the moment, 22, 23 hours a day. Um, so uh, things are really coming to a head with legal cases. Well, it's about time, and in, in, yeah. At the moment. He's got two young children now as well and a wife that he hasn't lived with. I mean, it's time for him to get on and be able to live his life, I think. That's true. So I aim to do it, but, um, you know, in this in this new world, my office is wherever Great. my laptop, my mobile phone, my iPad, and I am with a pen. Yeah, which is the beautiful thing about which the digital is the world, isn't it? Thing. Yeah. And, and as part of that. Um, ironically, with all the borders that were being closed down in um, Byron Bay, I had to go to Byron Bay for a week during COVID. <laughs> yeah. And I got locked out for three months. Oh, you poor thing. So you had to stay in Byron Bay for I three was, months. I was working, running COVID communications <laughs> from my friend's balcony in Mullumbimby. Yeah, perfect. The anti-vax. That, that is actually, perfect. to me, the perfect combo, isn't it? Thank goodness for the digital age. Um, okay, here's a, one last little question. You'll love it because you're a journalist and a journalist suggested it to me and I love the answers I get. Is there a quirky fact that most people don't know about you that you'd be up for sharing? <laughs> I love that one. Quirky Thank you, fact. Wendy Hargreaves. <laughs> mm, a quirky fact. I've heard everything from Kate Toon, who was the first person in Graham Norton's red chair, <laughs> to a woman who said I was the champion synchronised swimmer when I was a child. Oh, I haven't got anything like that to say. Um, <laughs> It can be anything. Uh, I think, I think I have a great knack for recognizing talent, and when I see someone who really impresses me, I I'm around them like a bad smell. And you've also got the contacts and the influence, I guess. I mean, one of the things that I talk about with PR, particularly for the women who are out there who get, who, and you would have this as well, where they go, oh, I don't know if, if, I don't think I'm that important. You shouldn't push me forward. And I'm like, you know, we've got to stop thinking about ourselves and we've got to realise that there are a whole lot of other people watching us and that therefore, you know, they need role models as well. So you need to push yourself forward that way. But also... If you want to make change happen in the world, you need to have influence and you need to have some power. And in order to do that, you have to push yourself out there. So, um, you know, love what you're doing. But I love that if you spot talent, you can actually help people and do something to help That's them, right. which is. I love hearing stories. I mm. love being a storyteller and I love hearing other people's stories. And that's how you build a network. That's how you build influence and power yeah and hopefully together we can all make the world a better place well that seems like the perfect moment to end this conversation uh this has just been fabulous jody thank you so much for sharing your story what an interesting woman you are oh, and i hope you. that there are women who are listening to this going right i want to do something that she did or i want to help julian assange or i want to go and get to know jody so uh we will push this out and and tell everybody how amazing you are Feel free to come and connect with me, meet me, drop me a message. Well, I was going to say, so what is, what is the best way if somebody did listen to this and go, oh, I love that woman, I want to get hold of her? Are you a LinkedIn woman? I Are am. You, uh, you can find me as Jodie Harrison on LinkedIn. Okay. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Great. So you're all I'm over the on Facebook? Facebook. Okay. Fabulous. Uh, you can reach me by 
Um, Contacting the Shannon Group. The Shannon Company, Jody at theshannoncompany.com.au or for Assange work, contact me as media at assangecampaign.org. Amazing. Thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of She's the Boss Chats. For more information and to find out about our other initiatives, including our weekly lunch for female founders and our TV show, go to she'stheboss.com.au.